Welcome to the Kesset Church Podcast. We are so glad you've joined us and hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you'd like to find out more about Kesset, you can head to kessetchurch.com or find us on Facebook. How's everybody? Oh, I am, I am so excited to be here today. If you're brand new, let me welcome you. My name is Danny. One of the pastors here at Kesset, thanks for being here. I promise nothing too strange is going to happen. Just, just relax. It's just church, people. Uh, for the rest of us, uh, I have no idea what's going to happen today. Something strange, probably. Uh, it's going to be a really fun service because this is, the, uh, this is the last talk I'm giving in Dragons and Dandelions before Byron Kaler closes out next week. It's going to be a really um, special weekend next weekend. I really want to encourage you guys to come back, bring friends. And then there's also a workshop right after church that Byron is having. Uh, Byron is a therapist who trains therapists, and he's going to spend three hours with us next Sunday in the afternoon. We're going to provide childcare. All the information's up there. But uh, if you want to come and dive a little deeper into your emotional health journey, um, I would recommend you be here next weekend and also attend the workshop. Uh, you can register on the app or online, or you can actually even show up that Sunday right at the door. Um, let me talk a little bit about this particular message and kind of how I'm approaching it. Um, I, I wasn't sure how to end such a special series. For me, and I've said this already, this series has probably been the most favorite, uh, my most favorite at least, that I've ever taught. I, I, I think it's the response, it's the people, it's the way in which God just continued to reveal himself to our church. And I want to make sure and encourage you guys and really bring a little bit of clarity around this idea that this is not the end of your emotional health journey just because it's the end of the series. Uh, it certainly isn't the end of talking about emotional health at Kesed. That's going to be something we do a lot, uh, more and more as it gets woven into our DNA. But you yourself, you, you really need to continue this process. And I hope that over the last eight weeks that uh, you would go on your own journey to ask the questions that, 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 that you need to ask about why you think the way you think. Why you behave the way you behave. Why you choose to make the choices you make. Because all those things tie back to your story. All those things tie back to your core belief system, which, which comes out of who you believe you are and how you see the world. And this series, Dragons and Dandelions, this idea of facing the big things and the small, hard-to-kill things in our life, is really nothing more than just a, a worldview series about emotional health and how you fit inside your own story. And so I just want to encourage you, I want to implore you to continue to dive into this work. This will change your marriage, it will change your, uh, your parenting, it will change the way you work, it will change everything about you. I know it's, it's changed a lot about me, those who know me uh, closely uh, and know how difficult the last eight weeks have been for me to get my head around some of these concepts and put myself in a position to talk about them, know that it has brought a lot of health to my story, to my marriage, uh, even to my kids. Uh, it's just, it's just been great. So thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for journeying with me. Um, and today as we close, um, I'm going to start by asking you to make a choice. I'm going to start by actually, I'll put a question up on the screen and I'm going to, you're going to make a choice whether or not you can answer this question. And the question is, have you accepted the reality that you all need to be rescued? Now, I think initially because of the series, and I heard it last series service, and I heard it this service, we're all going to say, yes, yes, I know I need to be rescued. I know that God is, you know, if you're on a faith journey with Christ, you know that, that God is your Savior, therefore you need saving, and you know it mentally, but, but do you really live it? Do you really know it? And closing my portion of this series, I wanted to leave you guys with just a very, um, a very confrontive choice. A choice that you really had to leave answering and had to accept 
um, the consequences of. And that is the choice to accept that you need to be rescued. James 4.14 says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This is probably one of the rudest verses in the whole Bible. Because everything else in the Bible is like you're valuable, you're important, Jesus wants to help you, like you're, you're, you know, never, you're never alone, he's always going to be there. And then, and then this bro just decides to just throw in, by the way, as valuable as you are, as important as you are, and as much as Jesus wants to help you, at the end of the day, your life is really no more than, <laughs> you're here and you're gone. And it's an interesting verse because it's kind of it's kind of on the edge of, of some other teachings that lean into this, some other teachings that that continue to point us to this idea that we are we are very uh, you know broken in this in this concept that we're going to live forever. We just live as if we're going to live forever and we don't talk about it, we don't think about it. Recently my wife and I were watching a TV show and it started off with a monologue and the gentleman started talking about this and I remember at the end thinking, okay, I'm going to use this. So I want you to watch it, and then I'm going to ask you the question again. Are you, have you, accepted the reality that you need to be rescued? Here's a challenge. I want you to believe what I'm about to tell you. Not just hear it, not just understand it, but believe it. It's a fact that you already know to be true, but have never been able to fully accept. And it's this. You are going to die. You, the person listening to me right now, are going to die. It's difficult even to imagine, isn't it? Take a moment and try to picture what it's like to not exist. You can't do it. You're imagining darkness, black. But there will be no black. There will be no color, because there will be no you to perceive it. And your mind recoils from that idea. It's simply unable to conceive of its own non-existence. And so it concludes that it's impossible, that you'll live forever, but you won't. All things end, all motion slows, all heat becomes cold. Life is an eddy in that current of entropy, a brief chemical reaction that lights up the darkness and then its fuel spent dissipates back to nothing, just like you will. Your body is a marvelous and intricate machine built out of millions of interconnected, fragile systems. And as you age, each begins to slowly but surely deteriorate and break down. When one fails, a doctor may be able to repair it, but at some point, there will be too many interlocking failures to proceed. And like a cascade of dominoes, your joints, your eyes, your heart, your lungs, your memory, your entire body will fail. It will happen. And while it's difficult to hear this truth, it is essential that you accept it. Because every second that goes by in which you don't is a second of your precious and finite life that you risk wasting. So I'm going to say it once more, and this time try as hard as you can to believe me. You, yes, you, will die. And there is nothing you can do to stop it. How's that? <laughs> Have you accepted the reality that you need to be rescued? Psalm 89:48 says, "What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol, another word for the underworld, from the next world?" Now, clearly this is 
uh, a pagan perspective, but it's a pagan perspective that's about 95% true. The reality is you are all going to die. You in this room right now will die, and so will I. Now, we believe as Christ followers that we aren't just science, that we're more than just chemicals and, 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 and uh, you know, electricity running from here to there. We believe that there is a soul, that there is spirit, and we do believe that there will be a next life. But that next life still passes through this one, and it looks like death. Have you accepted the reality that you need to be rescued? And if so, do you live that way? Do you make choices around that? I like this quote right here because I personally wrote it. Your life's choices proclaim what you believe can save you. Your life's choices right now today proclaim what you believe can save you. If you really believe that you need to be rescued, you would show it throughout your life. Jesus talks about it all the time. He talks about it in Luke 12, 16 through 21 when he's giving a parable. And he says to them, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store all my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now, I don't know what you've brought in with you today, but every person in this room has grain and goods. They have something they've invested in. They have something that they believe is, 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 is trustworthy, something that they, that they believe, uh, if we were honest, will save them. Now, this may not be physical things. You may say, oh, I don't have a bunch of money and I don't have a bunch of, of, of stuff. No, but you believe in something that you believe will save you. Maybe it's the way you behave. That's how you've refined your grains and goods outlook. Maybe it's uh, the legacy of your children or your grandchildren and seeing that they're good people in a broken world and they're going to help the world be better. You all have, we all have, I have grains and goods. And when my grains and goods are doing well, I want to figure out how to store them so that I can have more grains and goods just like this man. And then he said, I'll say to my soul, because this is a very authentic man, he knows what he's about. He knows what he believes can rescue him. I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. And I love this because this is everybody's ultimate goal, isn't it? Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's really the end game from everybody. Every, why do you work so hard? So one day I don't have to. I want to just relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And I want to look out across the fields of my life and see them packed to the brim and overflowing with grains and goods of poor decision and wise investment. But then it says in verse 20, Jesus proclaims that God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus Christ talks about this decision that I'm asking you to make all the time. He talks about it when it comes to how you view the world and how you act towards the world. Because if you don't realize that you need a desperate rescuing uh, of your life, then you will live as if you don't. And you will swim in waters above your heads. And you will exist in a place that is dangerous, that causes you to feel safe. Because that's the world's way of making you invest even more into the brokenness 
of its coffers, but the truth is that Jesus says there is only one way, and it is a narrow way. It is a difficult way, Matthew 7, 13. The way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. He says there is a wide road, and in this culture, the wide road was the well-traveled road. It was the road everybody knew to take. It was the road of wisdom, the road of convention. But Jesus says that narrow road, the road where bandits live, the road that's dangerous, the road that's full of risk, that is actually the road that leads to heaven because that road is a road that requires you to choose to successfully live down that road only by knowing you'll be rescued because the bandits are coming. If you choose to step out, right, of, of a life filled with sexual temptation, if you choose to step out of a life filled with greed, if you choose to step out of a life filled with addiction, the world, full of its wide road thinking, will say, you're crazy, what are you doing? And the bandits will come upon you. But if you choose this narrow road, you are saying, I know this road's difficult, I know this road isn't easy, but I know that Jesus Christ will rescue me. And so in essence, by choosing the narrow road, you are choosing to be rescued. This is the road in this culture that nobody took but thieves or people that didn't know any better. And Jesus says it is the narrow road that leads to heaven because it is the narrow road that God gets all the glory for a life well lived. A life focused on living truly sacrificially, a life focused on giving, a life focused on being more than just a person who hoards and builds big barns. Yeah, I heard you say that three days past. I don't want to, and I don't have to. That's what's more important. I want to give you a story. I want to give you a story that I think emphasizes this just beautifully. It's in Joshua chapter 2, and let me set up kind of the context. Joshua has now taken over the reins of the people of Israel. The people of Israel, 38 years earlier, um, had come to this same river and made a really poor decision, and Joshua was a part of that poor decision. See, two years even before that, the people of Israel left Egypt under Moses' reign. And after traveling in the desert, they came to the Jordan, and God said to them, send out spies into the land, spy the land, look at the land, and then I'm going to give it to you. It's amazing all that, that exists here for you. And the people went out, and Joshua was one of those spies. And when they came to certain cities, they saw the abundance of people and the incredible high walls and the dragons and the dandelions, and they came back. And 10 of the spies uh, complained, and two didn't, and they said to Moses, we can't do it. The dragons and dandelions are too big. The walls are too tall. The people are too many. We can't do it. We can't do it. We, we won't go. We're not going to go. And so for the next 38 years, they wandered in that desert, wandering around, waiting. God, God generously loving them into nothing because the reality is God just waited for that generation to die and now this next generation sat at the same river but now with Joshua in charge as an old man and they looked across the river at the same exact city and God says, I have a promise for you that I'm about to fulfill but I need you to send spies into the land. Ooh, talk about your stuff working up, right? You know how when you like have a certain smell that sort of triggers you or a certain thing? Imagine the Jordan River and Joshua going, I've been here before. Yeah, and I see my grandpa since. Like, it's just been a long time. <laughs> I don't want to be the generation that has to wander for another 40 years in the desert. And so Joshua sends in his spies. And as they come up to the city, the walls are just as big. The people are just as many. Nothing has changed. If anything, they're probably more prosperous. But this city known as Jericho, has to be overcome for God's promise to be fulfilled that the land will be given to them. And so the men enter the city and they see the first thing they they look at is a a brothel. 
And so they realized that, that that brothel is an easy place to get in and out of the gate and transfer information back to the city. And so they go into this brothel. Let's read about it together in Joshua chapter 2, uh, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Now Joshua continues on in this, in this uh, setting, trying to figure out how he's going to overcome the city, because at this point he doesn't know. And while he's trying to figure it out, waiting for his spies to come back, he ends up, the king of Jericho ends up finding out that Joshua sent people into the city, verse 2 and 3. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Now, at this point, Rahab has to make a choice. Because at this point, she has to decide if she's going to go with convention and with what she knows to be true, or if she's going to go with what she heard about the God of those who live in the desert. See, there's a rumor about this God of those who live in the desert, that they used to be people of slavery, that they used to be people of bondage. There's a rumor, though, that he sustained them, that he transformed them, that he made them powerful, that he rescued them. And Rahab, being near the city gate, and caught up in the culture that she is, and probably the lineage of a vocation that has been passed down to her, has been living in this way, but she knows in her heart that there's something more to her life, and so she listens earnestly, probably for weeks and months prior to ever meeting these Israelite young men, that they are being redeemed by this God who is making them into more, and she wants to be made into more. <laughs> she wants to be done with this lifestyle. She, wants, she, doesn't, she doesn't buy it anymore. And so when the king's messenger comes, she makes a decision, and it is a critical decision to hide them or not. And she decides that she's going to choose the God of those who get redeemed. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Rahab made a decision. She had taken a huge risk. What you may not realize, and this is pretty brutal, is that traders at this time in this culture would have had their hands cut off and been drugged through town to the opposite end of the city wall to be stoned against the wall. This is the kind of thing that she was choosing to face because she believed in the God of the desert who changes people's stories. She knows this. So she goes up and she finds the men, verse 8. And then she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. I know this, and I know that the fear of you has fallen upon all of us within the city, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is an unbelievable proclamation from this woman who lives as a prostitute who's never heard anything other than rumor about the God of the desert who sustains and redeems. Just super quick. Your excuses for not discovering the God who wants to redeem you are weak and make no sense. I know that you haven't studied the whole book. 
I know that you haven't, haven't spent 10 hours with a pastor who could lead you through and answer to every one of your questions. But the, the, the reality is that if you were honestly living a life that, know, that knew it was needing to be rescued, then a rumor of a God in the desert who redeemed would change you from the inside out. The truth is you don't live a life that needs to be rescued because you think you're going to rescue yourself. Let me just remind you once again, you still die. Love you. <laughs> she openly proclaims her belief in God just from a rumor. And then she asks for rescue. She gives up her motive. Joshua 2, 12 through 14. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. She lets them down through a window, and before she leaves, the men tell her, we will do this thing. Because you have believed in our God and because you have saved us, we will do this thing, and here's what we want you to do. We want you to take this red that is all throughout your house, that is tied into this cord, that represents who you are and what you do in this culture, and we want you to tie it to your window so that we know when we come back to the city where you are and everyone inside your house will be saved. Now you might think this is just happenstance, but nothing, nothing in scripture is happenstance. Nothing in scripture is not pointing back to Jesus. And this is a perfect example. Now remember 40 years earlier, when the spirit of God through Moses told Pharaoh, listen, I'm coming to the land. If you don't let my people go, bad things are gonna happen. Bad things happened to the point that Pharaoh was almost there, but not quite. And so God finally said, I'm going to take all the firstborns in the entire land of Egypt in order to break the back of Pharaoh's pride, in order to teach him that I am the one who rescues, not him. Then he says to the people of Israel, here's what I want you to do. Take your precious, most favorite, flawless lamb. Kill that lamb. Take its blood and put it on the door frames of your house. Mark it with crimson. And when the Spirit of God comes into the town, he will see the crimson as the battle wages, rages throughout the town. And as the loved ones fall, yours will be safe. Everyone inside the doors will be safe. So here's these young men, without even knowing it, re reaffirming that Christ and his crimson love, the sacrifice that he's going to make one day for us, is all that we have to hang over the hearts of our soul. And that is what matters most when the day comes, when the rescue is needed, when the walls fall. This is where we find our salvation. And so she does that. She does exactly that. She takes the crimson and she ties it and then she goes from house to house. She says, when the Israelites come, come to my house. Why? What are you going to do? Do you have a plan? Do you have swords? Do you have skill? Do you have men of armor that you've, that you've hired to protect your home? No. I've got this. Think about these conversations around dinner. Think about it. Like, listen, they're going to come. This is, a, this is a, a, a massive army. Our walls aren't going to save us. Our soldiers aren't going to save us. I know, what are you going to do? What have you invested in? What are your goods and grain? This. I'm going to tie this to my door. And I have word from the men of the God who saves that there will be salvation and redemption in my story and you will be saved if you will come underneath this flimsy cord that to this world and its incredible walls of thinking means nothing. 
See, every time Jesus Christ has been offered in your life, every single time that you have chose to do it yourself, you have chose to run in behind the walls of this world. You've chose to trust in what men said could rescue them when the reality is it's always been the crimson blood of God. Always, always, always. And you will die, and it will make all the difference in your eternity. Period. This is a lovely sermon. Very, very gentle, full of kindness. The nine o'clock didn't go like this. So there must be a bunch of people in here right now that you need to know Jesus really, really bad. I don't know why you came to this service. You messed it up for all the rest of the folks who just wanted the nice, gentle Sunday sermon. <laughs> it says a while later that Joshua did come. He marched around the city six days, once a day, and then seven times on the seventh day, and then he blew a trumpet. Awesome. God knocks down all the walls of this city, and they pour in. This was his proclamation before they entered into the land. Listen to how important Rahab is to even Joshua and uh, the, the overcoming of the promised land and the obstacle of Jericho. Joshua 6, 16 and 17. And at the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpet, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. And then he says... Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. He proclaims this. He says this. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly where it went. The two men went out, Joshua 6, 22 through 25, and they saved this woman and her family who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the two young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab. They went in and found the crimson cord and they brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron. They put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And I love how this whole thing ends. But Rahab the prostitute, they just won't let her go with the prostitute title. Like, just call me Rahab. Every time, it just wants to remind you, by the way, it's Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belong to her, Joshua, saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Let me just give you one other quick translation. Joshua means Jesus, right? It's the Old Testament form of Jesus. So Joshua in the New Testament would be the word Jesus. Okay, Jericho is obviously every single worldly obstacle that you and I face uh, all together. And when we are hiding the messengers, we are hiding the message of Jesus Christ in our lives. So Rahab lived because she hid the message of Joshua uh, that Jesus sent to her when the obstacles we all faced became too overwhelming, dragons and dandelions for us to face by ourselves. Unbelievable. And you hear it, right? And you're like, God fully redeemed her. Oh, he did. But see, our God just doesn't fully redeem lives. He empowers lives. See, here's what you may or may not know about this incredible woman who lived with the Israelites and actually ended up becoming one of them. You may not realize that Rahab is actually mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, where Paul chronicles the heroes of faith, he writes, Hebrews chapter 11, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute, there it is again, 
did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Do you know James in that book, James in that book mentions only two people when he addresses the relationship between faith and actually living out and choosing to work in your faith. And you know who they are? Abraham, the father of the nation, and Rahab, the prostitute. Unbelievable. James 2.24 just got done talking about Abraham. And then he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Did you know that Rahab is also mentioned in the very first chapter, in the very first few verses, when it talks about the important genealogy of a very important person of Jesus Christ? It says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is Matthew 1.1. Then it says the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it gives a few other people in Jesus' pedigree, in Jesus' genealogy. And it says, and then there was Salmon, the father of Boaz. And then look at that. By Rahab. With no prostitute. Just Rahab. The Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and there it is, Jesse, the father of King David. Rahab was King David's great-grandmama. You think your grandmama has stories. King David grew up with one who was like, let me tell you about when I, let me not tell you about when I was a little girl. (laughs) How Rahab is the the great-grandmother of King David. Rahab is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. All because she made a choice to be rescued. She made a choice to not believe what this world has told her. She made a choice to put her trust in the God who redeems and makes people's stories new. And yeah, everybody else can call her Rahab the prostitute. But as soon as you start mentioning that she's related to Jesus, she's just Rahab. This is what our God offers. This is why the world needs what we are selling. This is why we are always talking and moving and figuring out new ways to share because the truth is all we're asking people to do is take the narrow, dangerous road that could lead to all kinds of persecution and loneliness. And that's what we're, that's what we're inviting. And people are like, why would I want to be a Christian? Why would I want to believe this? Like you're so out of touch with what's going on in the world. Big road, big road, big road thinking. Look at our walls. Look at our society. Look what we've accomplished in the last such and such. And the narrow road says, but I just want to pray. I want to believe. I want to choose. I want to lean in to people who are different than me and not lean away. I want to welcome. I want to love. I want to accept. I want to, I want to sacrifice. I want to secure my faith in something beyond my own abilities. And people say, that doesn't make any sense. And you say, I know, but I don't want to live a life that makes sense to you. I want to live a life that is holy and is purposeful. I want to live a life that needs to be rescued. Your life choices proclaim what you believe can save you. What choices have you made recently? What is your own grains and goods? It's not hard to evaluate. We could probably do it in a half hour just sitting down together. The truth is we don't want to. We just don't want to because we don't want to face the truth that we believe we can rescue ourselves. But when the time comes, there's going to be a road to choose. Today, for some of you, that might be the road. This might be your first, and for some, sadly, this might be your only option. You could never hear the gospel presented like it's been presented today again before God calls upon your soul, as Scripture says. 
Right now, today, there is a battle waging around this one single choice, this red ribbon or not decision. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He says, if you choose me, if you choose me, then in me you will find life. I got a text this week from a lady who decided that she was going to choose to believe even though she didn't know how it was going to pan out, even though she didn't know how, she couldn't see how it was going to actually work. And I asked her for permission to actually share her text with you. I just want to read it to you and see if it relates to anybody in this room. She says, so reflecting back on this series, wow, I have a lot of dragons in my life. Some known to a few and many not known to anyone. Here's the deal. I am comfortable with my dragons, even when they hurt me. I've tried to allow God to defeat and take, and then I take control again, feeling nervous that the empty spot in my life where the dragon sat would be filled with the dragon and his master. The dragon is my security. I have been chained to the dragons way too long. The dragons have lied, cheated, and will continue to destroy. I know this in my head, and I'm working on understanding this in my heart. Today, you have a choice to make. Because it's through this place right now that we all have to make this difficult confession. That's what this whole series has been about. That, that only through the blood of Jesus Christ we can choose to accept first his reckless invitation. To be a part. To be involved. To be unfolded before him. Then to recognize that only through the blood of Jesus Christ we can choose to receive his hope from a hopeless place. His salvation. That through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can choose to be people who speak or strike. That through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can choose to admit we all live our lives encountering dragons. There's not a person in this room who doesn't. Don't let anybody convince you differently. That through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can choose to believe God is savagely generous with his grace and mercy. For he is the God out in the desert who redeems and makes people's stories new. Through the blood of Jesus Christ... We can choose to look up and proclaim, I believe what you say about me. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can choose to follow this God out into the unknown, down the narrow road, so that we can learn how dragons die. That's what this series has been about. The everlasting, overwhelming blood of Jesus Christ. Because no matter... Where you're at in your story right now, it's in each of these ways we can, step by painful step, choose to be rescued. I need to be rescued. I need to be rescued because without God in my life, I simply can't be the husband that I want to be. I need to be rescued because without Christ as my center I'm not the father that I know I'm supposed to be I need to be rescued because I want to be the pastor God has called me to be I need to be rescued because I know that no matter how hard I work how disciplined I become how much I build how many people call themselves my friends. None of it will keep me. 
none of it will hold me. None of it will receive me. When I step into that place beyond, I need to be rescued. And so do you. And it is only this blood of Jesus Christ, it is only him and him alone that can transform your story to be more than it is today. It is only if you choose him, it is only if you accept him, it is only if you receive his overwhelming, incredible love that you can live free and full both here and beyond. If you have never accepted Christ in your life, if you have never made the decision to choose to be rescued, I wanna give you that offer right now. I'd love for you to close your eyes. I'd love for you to bow your heads. I'd love you to go to that quiet place and I'd love you just to pray this simple prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I need to be rescued. I believe your son died on the cross. I believe the covering of his blood can cleanse me. I believe, God, that you want to save and make me more than I am. It's that simple. And folks, it's that difficult. Now to the rest of us, as I close my part of the series today, I just want to offer you one last challenge. Live a life loudly that screams it needs to be rescued. I know it's embarrassing. I know people that don't understand it will look down upon you, but if you can live a life loudly with lots and lots of I don't knows and I'm not sures, with lots of humility, with lots of willingness to look at other aspects and look at other perspectives, if, if lots of opportunity to lay down what you believe is going to save you in exchange for what Jesus says is going to save you. If you can do that, you will change your home, you will change your workplace, you will change your church, you will change your city. Who knows, you may even change this world, but it's gonna start by proclaiming, I need to be rescued. And so if you in this room right now, this is as dark as I can get it out there, can make a decision to be rescued, I'm gonna ask you to stand right now with me. I'm gonna ask you to stand in your seats and proclaim loudly and openly that you need to be rescued. Heavenly Father, we know it is only you and you alone that can take our brokenness and make it into something whole. So God, it's to you and you alone that we lift up these next few words and proclaim that our rescue is indeed at hand. May you receive us, God. May you use us, Lord. May you proclaim that we are your children, that we belong to you, and that we can become more than we are today. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.